0: hi i'm jen and i'm jen welcome to marginalia pod where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favorite book
1: I would like to begin by acknowledging the Guringai and Darug people, traditional custodians of the land where I'm recording today,
0: and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tangata Whenua of Te Atara where I'm recording today. Well, it has been a rough week for both of us. Yes, it's been quite a long week. I'm
1: ready for things to be easier. I'm also looking forward to that, although I think this week will be my harder week, because my daughter is going away to school camp
0: oh is it this week it's this oh week. so
1: intense yeah i mean she's nine she's almost ten she's gonna have a great time but oh i'm so like i'm just gonna miss her so much <laughs> oh,
0: it's so hard for mum isn't it
1: yeah. <laughs> like I can't, I can't tell her that right like because i have to be like you're gonna have so much fun it's gonna be great you're gonna do so much amazing stuff you'll get through it you're gonna
0: get through it this is true i will oh so brave i'm so proud of you I just really like my kids and that's lovely what a lovely thing um, now, despite the challenging week, did you have a moment of wonder for us?
1: I did. So my son is turning eight this week, um, and oh my gosh,
0: what! This
1: is kind of the first year he's been aware that like his birthday falls at a specific day, and also he knows what day it falls on, and he's been keeping track of the days. And we told him we were going out to breakfast this morning, and he was like at a fancy restaurant. And we were like oh, it's like a cafe, but like because we haven't <laughs> been anywhere in a year and a half. Yes, it's a fancy restaurant and he has been over the moon excited about going to fancy restaurant. And he ordered an omelet. (laughs) He was like, where's the menu? Here's the menu. And he was reading everything and he decided what he wanted. And like, he wanted to try a bit of my coffee and he wanted to try a little bit of my bacon. And like, it was just so cute. And it was just really lovely that he enjoyed going out to a cafe so much and was so tickled by it. And it just reminds me of all the times that like, I did this and took it completely for granted Mm. as like a normal thing. It's kind of nice that even after all of this, you know, year, my kids get to experience Going to a fancy cafe for breakfast Mm. as like a totally
0: novel experience, which is really great. I love those moments. I love those moments when you can reframe your everyday existence as something that is actually amazing. Because a lot of the things Mm. that we do every day is actually amazing. Like if you took a time traveler from ye olden times and dropped them in our world, how amazed would they be by everything? And we're like, yeah, whatever. I'm on a plane. Blah blah blah. I hate my seat. I hate this. I hate that. But it's so much cool stuff happening. So kids just allow you to, to see it through their eyes. I love they that. really do. The technology we live with every day and take for granted is bonkers. I mean, Yeah, absolutely. And even just, I think, you know, we're both millennials. And in our lifetime, how much things have changed. Like, oh, yeah. The internet and carrying it around in our pockets. Sometimes I just look at it and was like, wow, you know, six-year-old Jen would never could never have imagined this and yet here we are living our lives like it's mad it's madness
1: you know like the idea that I remember telling my husband when I first moved to Sydney in 2005 what I really wanted was a phone that had a map on it so I would always know where I was
0: like that Mm. was my
1: idea of the best in technology I was just like I want to be able to like have a street directory in my phone with me as a dot on it and then it happened and I was like I've done it. I've lived to where I wanted to live. Like,
0: it was just, that was the thing I want. I always want to know where I am. Um, I literally had a conversation at work with some of my younger colleagues who were like, so before GPS, how did you know how to get places? And I was like, well, you had maps. But my the way I used to do it is like, you went on the website what, where is and you would put in the mm-hmm. the address you wanted and you'd print out the instructions and then you'd go, go off and hope that you didn't take a wrong turn. Because when you did... You didn't know where you were. Yep.
1: Oh man, I had a street directory in my car and that thing was so well thumbed. I used to like sit there and memorize the orders of streets like, okay, left on this one, right on that one, right on this one. There's a roundabout here, there's stoplights here, like, because it
0: shows them all on the map. Yeah. Or well, someone would give you directions, being like, at the third KFC, turn left, and at the house with the green door, go right, and you'd have to remember all this. Yeah. But yeah, and even then we moved into having GPSs and all these things, like all these individual gadgets. Mm. And now it's like, no, nah, I just got a phone. Got a phone, does it all, problem yeah. solved. Sometimes I just turn it on so I can see what the traffic is like. I know where I'm oh, going. Oh, I do but... that too. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I check what the traffic's like. Yep. Yep. Amazing. Technology, man.
1: Um, so did you have a moment of wonder <laughs> in this week?
0: I did, um, so very busy week, I felt very overwhelmed, like mm-hmm. as an introvert, I need a lot of time to recharge, and I've probably not had any time on my own in about, I don't know, four weeks, so I'm feeling very flat battery, mm. yeah, so I run a D&D group, and I am the dungeon master, and I come up with the adventures, and we've got a very convoluted campaign that I've got them on where they have to find cursed objects but at our last session two of my party members were like could we have a sea shanty adventure I want to be on a boat and they love sea shanties and they've just gone to like a sea shanty night so they were really into it and we were, I was like you know what yes yes you can have that mm. so this week in all the chaos of my life I was like "Okay, I need to find time to write the sea shanty adventure and basically just listen to a whole lot of sea shanties and was trying to like link up the right shanty to the story I wanted to tell and make this playlist and now my spotify algorithm is completely messed up but anyway (laughs) came up with this like kind of pirate adventure with the corresponding sea shanties And what I actually wanted to do was write a musical where all the characters were cursed so that they had to sing and they couldn't talk. But then I just, that got too complicated. So we didn't do that. And therefore the shanties just related to particular locations and particular relevant things. So I love that idea. I know maybe for my next Mm. campaign, Mm. I will do that. And they'll be like, you have to find the person who cursed them to lift this curse. Otherwise everyone just sings everything because (laughs) I low key love, love a musical. So yeah, we had the campaign today and it was just like lots of fun and everyone really enjoyed it my friend calls in from Auckland and we put her up on a screen so she's like our our fourth party member and yeah it was just really fun they always get really into it so it was a little moment of wonder
1: <laughs> that is awesome I love people's imaginations they're also different to mine it's fun it's fun to see it at work
0: all right uh well
1: this week we talked about chapters 35 through 41 and we read them through the theme of rumours Mm. Um, and I wanted to know, do you have a story for us about rumours? So
0: I think for me, I was thinking of rumours in two ways. So I have a habit of, I think this comes from my fandom days of like really chasing down a rumour because I, I hear something and I'm like, I must know the truth. I must get Mm. to the bottom of this immediately. I have a very strong compulsion and I think it's because honesty and like truth is sort of one of my key tenets is like my personality. Like I really value honesty. And so I think that ties into with this urge to always know if something is true or not. Yeah. So recently I heard a rumor that there was a TV show filming in New Zealand that people didn't know about. And so therefore I spent, you know, a whole day traversing the internet, trying to get to the bottom of this. Cause like I had a reputable source and I had to know like, is this TV show actually filming here? <laughs> Where is the evidence? And like, I spend all this time like chasing down these rumors. And it's just so pointless because it doesn't mean anything, but I need to know. <laughs> Yeah. But then the other way that rumours kind of work is really insidious and it ties into this kind of fake news narrative Mm. that we see on social media, right? So I find especially when I was working in politics, like it sort of all runs on rumours. Not only is the the government like the parliament precinct sort of fueled by rumors because you would hear things from different offices or things would be this or someone would be like i heard this and you're trying to piece together what is actually happening because everything is kind of also on a need-to-know basis in government so sometimes you yeah. don't know until something is announced or when something is going to happen and so there's a lot of like oh i heard this and i heard this and what's going to happen and how does that all tie together and if This person is doing this, then it must mean this. And so you're like, you know, you're the person with the string pulling it all together, trying to figure it out. But just one of my overwhelming memories was just how this rumor started online and then how it sort of goes from this really niche message board and now it's on Twitter and now it's on Facebook and now you see it everywhere and it just kind of breeds this whole thing, like just this rumor circulating that this is what's happening and people just start... Because it's cropping up in so many places, people think that it's fact. Yeah, I just find it fascinating and to the point where even now, four years later, even after the rumor has been debunked, I still see it pop up. I still see it pop up on Twitter. I still see it pop up on Facebook. And it's just like how insidious that kind of rumor is. Yeah. So yeah, it's more an observation than a story, really.
1: That's <laughs> all right. I get that. Like, It's hard to know where to land on rumors because on the one hand, they do have a community like they're valuable to the sense of community but on the other hand like you're right fake news is a thing that we as people need to be really worried about really careful about and Mm. i I did a lot of research on the psychology of rumors and by a lot i mean i read like a paper and a half that's a lot (laughs) more than i would have put in any effort for just idle curiosity one of the things that really struck me was that they actually had done enough research on it to have sort of this empirical proof that people believe negative rumors more quickly Mm, and mm. for longer than they do positive rumors and they're more likely to encode that information and then act on it if they if there's a negative thing so it's like the worst things are more persistent than any of the positive things Um, yeah i think is part of why cancel
0: culture is a thing right yeah definitely people are way more willing to believe bad things
1: yeah for me I think that means I need to be sure to give everybody the benefit of the doubt like if I don't know anything about them or have interacted with them personally then I kind of need to be like okay what are the sources and where am I going
0: Mm. yeah it's always hard because it's a it's kind of like a knee-jerk thing within yourself like we're always making snap judgments right as people we're always that's just how we function so it's kind of like pulling yourself up and be like okay this is my instinct this is what I want to do but is there something else going on here
1: yeah, is it legitimate or is it just me reacting to other similar things? Mm. All right. Well, I think we did see a lot of, like, rumor stuff in the chapter. Should I read the summary for us? Yes, please. All right. Sarai's exhaustion grows as Minnie's delight at a prospective war increases. Sarai finds herself in Lazlo's dream before she even enters it. She trades places and lets him think she's Isagol. She warns him not to come to the Citadel, but the Silk Slays make the journey the next day anyway. Minya's ghost army attacks, and Sarai is hurt trying to warn them away. Laszlo saves Azarine's life. They keep it a secret from the rest of the citizens of Weep. That night, Sarai goes to Weep to investigate. So, a lot happened in these chapters.
0: A lot did happen. Oh my gosh. I really, really enjoyed it. Like, I just Hmm. thought it was so good, but intense. Yeah, no, I really love these chapters. I just thought, I was really, really into the first dream that, Sarai interrupts with Laszlo I just had a lot of thoughts about that so that's where I kind of yeah mm. I focus most of my attention on that
1: <laughs> oh that's so good I was back with Errol Fane and Azarine this time that's where I spent a lot of time thinking oh, and Minya actually right. um I wanted to talk a little bit about rumors as like what they are because it's really hard to define like we all sort of seem to have an instinctive knowledge of what a rumor is like my first thought because I read a lot of young adult is like oh a rumor about someone going around to school and like making it hard for them to attend class or like something like that like a something that goes around it's like a, a lie or something that's not kind or good yeah something that yeah that the kind
0: of um smirches your reputation right yeah
1: yeah a lot of that so i like i ended up on this paper by Allport and postman which is about like the context of this book or paper or whatever it was was written in 1947 so it's sort of written within the context of world war ii um but they actually defined rumors and they said that they are transmitted by word of mouth um, they provide information about people, events, and conditions, and they express and meet the emotional needs of the community, which I thought was a really good set of parameters, because often when a rumor is going around, it's to either reinforce existing community like you are one of us, or to exclude community, you are not one of us.
0: Yeah, I, I guess I never really thought about the needs of the community in that sense, but that does that does fit, doesn't it? Like It's, it's a, almost a protection mechanism of the status quo, right? Yeah, exactly. And having
1: that like third piece totally blew my mind. It changed a lot of how I viewed what I was looking at through the lens of a rumor in this in this section.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Cause one of the the places that I saw rumors was I thought that the Godspawn's entire existence is kind of based on rumors. Mm. Like it's what others know about them and their parents, like thinking that they're dead. But it's also about who knows about them, about whether they're real or not. And that what they know about themselves is informed by the rumors they've heard from other people. So, you know, people think we're dead or what Sarai brings back. You can argue those are rumors rather I than knowledge. I think they
1: are because she's only getting them from dreams. And like my dreams are a chaotic mess. They are not like entirely representative of me, I think. They really are just my brain sort of going through whatever.
0: Yeah. And also, they're just one person's point of view. Like, mm-hmm. you're getting a view of someone's brain, which is one person, and I don't necessarily think that that is the purest form of knowledge, because that is just one perspective. Yeah. So, it's just as good as hearing it from someone being like, oh, I heard a story that this is happening, right? Because yeah. that's kind of what you're doing when you're peeking into someone's brain.
1: Yeah. And not it's not in a clean narrative sense either, which I think is really important. Like, and they, I mean, the book does address that. It does talk about how she has to really fossick around in someone's mind to find the things that make them who they are. Um, I especially was I was really struck by how she talked about not wanting to visit Draves mind because Mm. all the women in his dreams were bruised and she didn't want to stay long enough to find out why Mm. and i thought that was really powerful because she's already made a decision about him which is probably accurate but like also later on i feel like avoiding him is going to cost them something
0: absolutely and that's the thing right because she's made a decision that she doesn't want to go in there she doesn't enjoy you know it's not a, a fun time like she doesn't enjoy the experience she, she's made a decision that there's nothing worth knowing mm. in his mind. Um, and that's where, you know, what she brings back isn't pure knowledge because she is picking and choosing. She's curating her experience. Yeah.
1: So. And what she gives to the other Mazartham um, children, right? So, like, she talks about how she used to bring stories of cheekiness to Ruby and, like, what domestic life was like on the ground for Sparrow and Minnie wanted to know all of the horrors that she inflicted. She couldn't really give anything to Farrell until she met or she started going down when there were Feranji there and there was all this knowledge because he really craves Mm. knowledge. So Mm -hmm. she talks about it as like things that she tries to make vivid for him, but it still has to go through the filter of Sarai.
0: Yeah, and she can only do that through her own experience and her own understanding of the world. So it's always going to be slightly warped, right?
1: Yeah, so it'll never be true in the way that he would experience something subjectively, therefore making it truth to
0: him because it's always going to have that layer of removal. Hmm. I also thought the idea of them having a future is a rumour. It's sort of a thing that they tell themselves. Yeah. Like a little necessary fiction. Yeah, I thought it was so telling. I think on page 327 she says, Only one thing was sure, whatever happened. From this moment on, the five of them would be like ghosts pretending they were still alive. And I thought, kind of like a rumor. They're a rumor about their existence. But then, haven't they always been living like that? Haven't their whole lives been Mm -hmm. living as ghosts? They live by the rule. No evidence of life. Yeah,
1: Yeah, so like they're already concealing themselves from the people in wait.
0: It really moved me when she was thinking about what if they left, what if they moved the city and then they would be presiding over this empty city and they would just haunt this space. And it's it was interesting because they're not part of WEEP. They essentially already haunt WEEP. But she still the still the thought of the city being empty just caused her such pain.
1: Yeah. I think she belongs to it in the same way that Laszlo does, you know? Like it isn't really somewhere mm. that she would have ever considered herself welcome or wanted but it's always been where she wants to be hmm. um, I think another thing about rumors that's really interesting is that the further they go the more simplified they become so there's like no room for nuance or subtlety
0: hmm.
1: and you find a lot of this seem to come out when we're talking about all of the people of Weep except the ones who don't have their memories erased like for everyone else it's sort of this like collective trauma that they've all told themselves these terrible things happen and the girls get stolen and the Lilith has changed so we know that they've had these babies but they never see the babies and they don't remember but this is what's happening like they have the fact of it but they don't experience it so there's like almost a rumor in their lives of what happened to them but they can't speak from a personal experience whereas with Errol Mm. Fane he doesn't have that memory erasure so he's got the full spectrum like he lives in the nuance because he can't separate out his experience so he's having to live in that duality where like he remembers and also he knows what it's like to be made to love one of the Mazartham and he still feels that because that's how Isagol's power worked. Azarine has a similar experience but the other side of the coin where she was thoroughly subjugated by these people and she doesn't have the luxury of being able to forget like it's not taken from her she remembers mm. which is really hard but also like it makes me super mad that he won't just go in there and hold her because like I don't care what your damage is Errol she's hurting too
0: yeah that was such a moving passage the way that Sarai observed them and how she was like can't they see that if they just combined their misery it would actually help ease Both of them.
1: Yes. It was so insightful. She feels so guilty
0: as well about being the child that he did have. I know her guilt is really a whole thing but then also his guilt and the way that the fact that she's alive has given him sort of a a sense of absolution like he Mm. she doesn't read it as that but that's definitely how Laszlo reads it right like there's a sense of relief that the fact that they're not all dead I wanted to ask you a
1: question about that um yeah so on page 342 she said horror that's what she had seen on his face and nothing short of it but I I don't think it was horror at the fact that she was alive. I think it was horror at the fact that she'd been alive up there by herself for so long and was being like dragged away by these unseen arms who then came out and attacked him and I think he had to kind of relive the horror of the thought like he was confronting the realization that he thought he had killed his own child and he hadn't because mm. he, he doesn't want to have been the person that killed his own child, even though like they all agreed that that was the thing that had to be done. And it's horrifying. But I think yeah. that she's putting herself into that in a way that isn't necessarily true. Mm.
0: No, I wrote in the margins of that being like, I think you're projecting Sarai, because mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of projection. Also, she assumes that Laszlo will hate her like before she goes to visit him the second time. Yeah, she just assumes there's horror because this is what she's internalized about herself, right? Yeah. So I don't necessarily think there is even horror on Errol Fane's face. I think there's probably disbelief and probably shock, but she projects horror onto him. Mm because that's what she thinks he will seem, because Minya yeah. has arguably kept Sarai and everyone in line with rumors, right? Rumors yeah, about- Yeah, she's running a massive propaganda campaign. Yeah, like that's how she keeps them in line, and it's all about, they're gonna hate you, blah, 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 you have to kill them.
1: There's something of a, like, a circular thing going on with Minya where she's just decided that the Godslayer would have killed them if he could have, and yes, that's true, but mm. I don't think he would now. It's di- like It feels different now, right? he's had 15 years
0: to live in this like agony of grief and he's obviously traumatized and tormented by what he had done that first time like it's not an easy thing and i think a lot of the people of weep who were there and who know about it who don't have the luxury of forgetting as Mm. you say are traumatized by what they did about the killing of the the children in particular yeah
1: the guy from the council the day before was just like i I can't i can't go up there you should know and Errol Fain's like but mm. you know you were there at the end and he's like look at me I can't do it mm. so it was hard enough for all of them to have to do this thing
0: because even though they are you know the god's children if you will they're still also their children
1: yeah just back to Errol Fain for a second I mean when Sarai comes out she's already cut she's covered in blood and she's screaming and she's being attacked so like could the horror not be the fact that she's like literally been injured and is in a nightdress and like screaming at them to go and like I mean she's hurt. Yeah being
0: pulled back as well like those you know seeing her physically being pulled away and then being attacked by these ghosts and the horror of realizing that this is you know when Azarine says nana it just breaks my heart. I know I know oh
1: Azarine I think I've always enjoyed her perspective, but felt very much like, oh, Laszlo, oh, Sarai. But this reading, I'm really like, Azarine, who I'm keying into the most. Something about all that perseverance and longing and just determination. I really love it.
0: It's intense. I want to talk about that first dream that we get in this section when Sarai goes to visit Laszlo. So I have so many feelings about this particular dream. Firstly, I think Laszlo's dream version of Sarai who he thinks is Isagol, right? It's just a manifestation of a rumour. Because Mm. he's only heard rumours of Isagol. He has no real understanding of her. And then Sarai remarks on page 304, It might have been her face, but it was a phantasm. Just a scrap of memory dancing on a string. And everything it said and did came from the dreamer's own mind. That's what a rumour is, right? You just hear the scrap of information and then you build this entire world around it. So I thought that was... Really interesting. But so much stuff going on in this particular section. So in terms of our other theme, knowledge, Laszlo's dream state kind of challenges the knowledge of reality. Now, I don't want to get into, like, postmodernism and deconstructionism (laughs) and Derrida here, but, like, what is reality? And then Sarai (laughs) dissolving the dream version of herself and taking her place, trying to do it without Laszlo realising, and taking control of Laszlo's dream is actually a great manifestation of deconstructionism because mm. she allows her reality to infect Laszlo's. So, you know, it's this idea that no reality is pure, no concept is pure, nothing yeah. is pure, it doesn't exist in its pure state. And, like, Laszlo remark- like, observes it on page 305 as a sort of sharpening of the lines of her as though a diaphanous veil had been lifted. Yeah. She felt more real than she had a moment ago.
1: I actually wrote in the margin there that it was like he was getting the truth
0: after hearing a rumour. Yes, absolutely. And then on page 309, it was Laszlo, she thought. It was his mind. The rules were different here. The truth was different. It was nicer. I loved that. It's kind of like this dream is just a pure state for both of them where they can park their separate truths and come to a more whole understanding of what is happening. And then, of course, to bring everything back to Harry Potter because, of (laughs) course, (laughs) on page 316, the left behind logic of the real world came slanting down like shafts of sun, through the surface of the sea, and he began to grasp that none of this was real. I love that image of the sun, like, Mm. coming through the sea. It's such a beautiful knowledge. But of course, it's the Dumbledore quote. Like, yes, it's happening in your head, Lazlo, but why would that mean it's not real? He says that at some point, doesn't he? It wasn't real, but it's not not reality. And then he doesn't listen, like, because, you know, then she warns him, Mm. and I think... That moment where she like transforms into this vision with the blood dripping down her hair and pooling in her eyes and things and she's trying to warn him and then when he wakes up he's like, "Mm, it's just a dream. But that whole bit where she does that transforming thing really reminded me of... I don't know if you've seen The Umbrella Academy or read The Umbrella Academy. I've seen of most of the first season. Because of course there's Alison and Allison is the rumor and her power yeah. is to say, I heard a rumor and then she transforms reality to be whatever she wants it to be, right? So she can mm-hmm. say, I heard a rumor that you jumped in the sea and then someone goes and jumps in the sea. So mm. that's really cool and I thought that's kind of what Sarai was doing with that moment where she's like, you know, everyone will die. She's turning into this nightmare vision trying to keep him away. Yeah, But he's just like, Oh well, it wasn't real. Yeah, which is quite frustrating. Just a
1: dream. Um, the passage I was looking for is on the bottom of page three forty-seven. Where he says, but he couldn't quite convince himself that it wasn't reality in its way. It hadn't occurred in the physical realm, that much was true. So even though it wasn't happening in like an observable way, it was still yeah. happening.
0: Yeah, and he goes on in that section to also have that line where he's like, his mind had touched her mind, and that seemed to him a deeper reality and an even greater intimacy. <sighs> which I just think is beautiful. And then he's like, you know, there are no limits on my dreams, I can do what I want. Because he, he also remarks that he has always like he's always been really vivid dreamer, yeah. but he's never had it to this extent. And I wonder if it's the proximity to Sarai that allows him to have this really vivid experience. And like,
1: yeah,
0: I know that she's called the Muse of Nightmares, but she should really just be the Goddess of Dreams. Mm. And if she's the Goddess of Dreams, and he is strange, the dreamer does that make him the God of Dreams?
1: Oh, I love that co-signed. I'll say yes on that. My personal opinion is that it's the like proximity to. Mazarthium. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, okay. Probably makes sense, because that's what starts to change it. Yeah, like
1: that's affecting his skin color already. Like he's touching it and he's going gray and he's like, oh, it's not washing off, even though he spent literally all night in the bathtub, but you know, mm. YOLO. I'll just keep <laughs> getting into silk sleighs and shrugging
0: off dreams. The other thing I love about that initial dream, like this is just so insane, like we've got this whole thing about what is real and what is reality, and then in the same dream, we get this hardcore personal identity philosophy that's happening. Like, oh, yeah. Sarai is the Oracle of Delphi, Standing in front of Laszlo being like, know thyself, Mm. you know, she's like, who are you? And Laszlo says it was the smallest and biggest question. He didn't know what to say. And I'm like, I think Laszlo, with all his introspection, actually has a very good idea of who he is. He has a better idea than, say, Thion Nero does. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Even if he doesn't fit into the social structures, that's the thing where he breaks down because he's like, well, I'm this and I'm this. So within the world that I live in, I don't fit. But that doesn't mean he doesn't know who he is.
1: Yeah. I love that because he was sort of like, well, how do I explain myself? What do I say? And he takes her back to the library, which I think is really telling because he's not actually a librarian, but it was where he became Strange the Dreamer.
0: Mm, The
1: formative years of his life was spent among these books, being able to learn, to read. He was working, yes, but he was also like developing his own interests and nurturing his passions. So yeah, he might say he doesn't know who he is because he has no name and he's a foundling. And like he's made peace with that to a certain
0: extent. But like he you're right, he has way more of an idea than almost all of them. Yeah. And I like that in that bit we get that kind of recall to the Mahalath, you know, Mm. the fog that turns you into a god or a demon, which we saw way back on page 181 is the definition that yeah, came have. Yeah, the
1: inter- Um
0: Yeah, and she asks, Soraya asks Laszlo, you know, would you would you go into the fog? And he's like, yes, of course. And she's like, oh, you, you said that so quickly. And he's like, no, I've spent years thinking about this. It's not yeah. a quick decision, which again just shows how well he knows himself.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thought. Like, I don't think I would take that risk. I think I like myself as I am.
0: Yeah, I'm the same. Yeah. But then when I was 20, I might have answered differently. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a maturity thing, I think. But that whole bit in the library makes me think as well, would you call things like fairy tales and myths and legends? Are they rumours?
1: I don't know. I thought about that too, because I want I wanted to really have a stronger link than just the idea of... Because the strongest link I felt was Sarai pulling concepts out of dreams and then translating them for the rest of the godspawn. That was like the most rumour I could think of. So I thought, oh, maybe it's in all of the like stories. But everything that has been a rumour to Laszlo has kind of come true, right? Mm, yeah. All of these rumors have really bored out for him. So the stories that he heard were all second, third, fourth hand from this monk whose grandfather used to make the trip, right? Like, I mean, it was everything he heard about the Unseen City, about Weep, was all rumor until he started doing his own research on it. And then it was still a mm-hmm. lot of conjecture. But there was so much truth in it, right? Like the cusp yeah. actually is the melted bones of demons, right? You know, he made a joke about the problem being the seraphim coming back and there's a giant angel over the city. (laughs) I just feel like he has this uncanny way of being able to get to the kernel of things and find the truth in it no matter what he is or who, like what he's dealing with. He's always able to find the truth of it.
0: Although we could argue that the Mishatham chose that form to come to to weep because they heard a rumour that they worshipped the Seraphim and so they're like, you know what we should do? We should be Seraphim mm. when we go down there.
1: Mm. Yeah. I can't remember enough of the sequel to know if that's what happened, but I'm pretty sure that they're, like they're it was a deliberate choice.
0: I think the other like most obvious thing about rumours that I saw is Errol Fane actually not wanting to start a rumour, so that's why he forbids them from talking, right? He's yeah. like, I cannot have people thinking about this, talking about this, everyone will panic, so ixnay on the children <laughs> yeah
1: i i thought that was a really interesting thing because t- they really only saw sarai right and then all the ghosts mm. so they haven't seen the other four no idea right mm. but they did see like he has seen his daughter and he knows that that's his daughter because she looks like Isagol, and he was Isagol's consort and like it all lines up i could not imagine what he's going through i found it really interesting that sarai was super worried about the impact of those rumors and she was like expecting because mm. she's talking about on page 349 she was expecting the panic and preparation and she didn't see it Mm. and then on page 352 she talks about it a little bit more she couldn't forget the look of horror when he had seen her in the doorway nor could she understand why he'd kept her secret now that he knew she was alive what did he plan to do about it there's no room in her heart or mind to like think that he'd want to make a considered choice because she's never had any experience of him as being somebody who makes a considered choice all she has of him is his trauma his shame and what minya has said about him right
0: Mm -hmm. And I think that's so interesting because it comes right after on page 345. She has that realization where she says she also knew that in all of the city and in the monstrous metal angel that had stolen the sky, she was the only one who knew the suffering of humans and godspawn both. And it came to her that her mercy was a singular was singular and precious. Mm. So she's already had this realization that actually she's the only one who really understands the plight of both of them. And yet she still expects the worst.
1: Yeah, it's so hard to think about. Can we talk about Um, for just one tiny second the way that Sarai really realized that arms are just useless links hanging from your shoulders and what do you
0: do with them when you're talking? I was like, oh my gosh, she's an awkward teen. I also loved how observant Laszlo is. I just loved that when he remarks about her toes digging into the earth and he's like, wow, she's probably never been on the Mm. earth. Has she ever like? If she has, you know, she doesn't have a concept of what soil feels like or any of these things because she's always been in the angel. And I just think. For him to notice that is actually really special. I actually wrote down that
1: I said Laszlo keen observer strikes again Um, because (laughs) when they're on the silk's like going back down after having been attacked by Nana and all the other ghosts, um, on page 334, Laszlo couldn't see his face, but he could read his shoulders. Something very heavy was pressing there. He knows Errol Fane well enough to know that the stress of what's happening is like really affecting him already. And I think it's really important also that Laszlo later tries to say like, did Did he know he had a daughter? Because Hmm. he keeps wanting Errol Fane to be more blameless than he actually is. But he also doesn't, like, bury his head in the sand about it. He accepts these things when they're told to him about the complexity of this man that he cares. Because he
0: really does care for him like a father. Yeah. And he also has that kind of wordless communication with Azarine in that scene where she gives him a look and he, like, drops it. So he has enough of an understanding of her as well. So he's just spent so much time with these people Mm. getting to weep. That he's got this whole relationship and i suppose in that way he's the same as sarai in that sense that you know he knows her and he knows that she and he will know her better as the book goes on yeah so then he has this uh, this keen understanding of her struggle as well as the struggle of the people of weep he is a a bridge between the two of them yeah i kind of wondered about where
1: rumor tips over into apocrypha you know like where something is said so much and it's like accepted as a truth even though it may not be a truth. Like, a lot of the things that are presented as truth in this story, just to over across the whole book, really, kind of have that, like, feeling to them. Like, the gods are unilaterally bad, but we know that's not true because, like, it's the gods spawn or not, right? And mm-hmm. everybody who goes up there has their memories erased, except we know that's not true because the ones who killed the gods don't. Like, I mean, all of these things that are given to us as truth, we then find out have been undermined by other experiences or are not the same. So I do wonder how much of the idea of, things that aren't true, but have been passed around as truth, you know, in the way that Weep needed to build community because they, they weren't allowed to keep written records. They weren't allowed to have universities or governments or a guard, you know, they didn't have any way of recording things. The so rumor was really the only way that they were able to keep mm. account of each other and to themselves. And also it must have functioned as, as this way to like build a community of us versus them so that they could then rally to defeat the Mazartham.
0: Yeah. And I definitely, I was very much interested in the stories people tell themselves to make sense of their reality, right? There's the things we tell ourselves. And I guess that is rumours, right? Mm. The rumours that we piece together in order to justify whatever is happening. Yeah. And I thought I saw that in that whole bit where they talk about how the people of Weep must have forgotten to secure the ropes on the pulley system to get up to the Citadel because of all their, you know, their celebration. And I they like, must have oh, forgotten. that was Minya, when- right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> had to have been Minya. Who else would it have been? She would have just like chucked them down yeah. and they would have been like, hmm, Okay. And then they've just told themselves the story that this is what must have happened, because with the knowledge they had, Mm -hmm. that's what made sense. You wouldn't expect a six-year-old to be up there. Minya's campaign of
1: rumor-mongering and fear-mongering was really evident this time. The way that she manipulates the ghosts to say and do certain things. Mm. And the way that, um, even when, you know, she sort of has Arielle say, they're going to murder you all, they'll kill you all, I thought, and, and Sarai was just like, whether or not Minya compelled him to say that or whether or not he believed it, she knew it was the truth. And I was like, but how, like, how can you say that if you know that Minya has this perspective of, like, they're coming to kill us, so we'll kill them? How mm. can you then say that Ariel would not be like, you know what, I don't know what they want. I think they just want the Citadel to go, like. Yeah. And even if it is true, like, he seems too young to have been affected by it. So, like, what rumors has he heard about the gods and the God's wand, to think that.
0: Yeah, and I think the thing that really struck me in this reading was the kind of, it's between, with Minya and Sarai, I saw this real link between rumour and knowledge. Mm. So Minya wields rumour as this power, and Sarai suddenly got this knowledge that that's what she's doing. She's in this section really woken up to Minya's manipulation, and she's, like, really done with it. She's really starting to understand how used by Minya she's really been her entire life in a way that she hasn't before. And she kind of pops off and has a crack at Minya and then the others are like, okay, bye, we're going to go now. I just think it was fascinating because on page 340 she says, you know, Soraya's having a crack at Minya. And she said, you made the choice. You chose nightmares. I was too young to know better. You used me like one of your ghosts. Which, you know, is intense. And then later she's having a bit of a crisis of conscience where she says she hadn't meant to choose. That wasn't what she'd done. She she wasn't a traitor, but she wasn't a murderer either. Pacing, she felt as though her life had chased her down a dead-end corridor and trapped her there to haunt her. she's just like overwhelmed by this knowledge of like entrapped by the story that minya has told and she feels so guilty because she had other knowledge but she never shared it with the others she could have changed the narrative yeah but she didn't i just
1: can't get behind the whole an eye for an eye thing i think minya just really wants her vengeance she really does want it paid for in blood and there's something about minya that is fundamental to keeping them safe in a way that it has just basically like carved away all of the compassion and empathy she might have ever felt Mm. like whatever she has her entire focus is on keeping them safe protected and away from the humans and Mm. because of that she does some really atrocious things but I think Ruby actually has it right when she says I'd rather be on Minya's side than against it. Yeah
0: I love that bit because Ruby says you know she's gruesome but she's gruesome for us and then she's like would you ever want to be against her and Sparrow being so observant looks at Sarai and sees that Minya has already started to you know turn Mm -hmm. against Sarai, has already taken the lull from her and she's like "Mm, no actually I don't want to be against her.
1: Yeah that's that's hard. It was hard to see, but I did love that she was just a bit snotty about it and said, Why don't you give her a nice warm hug, Ruby? You know, when Sparrow says it, like she's really ticked off. Mm. She's the gentlest one and she wants the most for everything to be peaceful.
0: But even Sparrow, I think, really sees what Minya is doing. Maybe she saw it before the others, like before even Sarai. I feel like Sparrow had a better understanding of what was happening. And I feel like Ruby is just hid in the sand, oblivious to it all.
1: Yeah, I think she's done that thing where when you're really scared of something happening, you just avoid thinking about it and do nothing Mm. to deal with it. Like, she treats it very flippantly. And I know that there have definitely been times in my life when I've made, like, really flippant comments about horrible things that I'm going through, and I just, like, laugh it off. Kind of make light of it. (laughs) And I think Ruby does that, but she also then just doesn't confront it in a way that actually means that she's, like, really getting Mm. through it. Whereas Sparrow is much more like, okay, this is awful. I'm in it. This is how I feel what are the solutions okay none of them work and this is all terrible yeah she sort of has a better
0: handle on like where they actually are i just loved it like it was such hard work because it was terrible like i really felt for sarai yeah me too really felt for Errol fain
1: yeah i love that like we i mean i know he's meant to be this massive guy um but (laughs) when he was described as not being able to put the harness on you know who i thought of i thought of maui from moana Oh my it god! It's just like such a massive is. guy. I was like, oh, he's like Maui.
0: <laughs> I love that. And um, when Sol was like, can you just clip yourself to something at least? <laughs> <laughs> I actually love them as a couple as well, because I love that she told him. Yeah,
1: yeah. I want their story too like we got a little glimpse of it in the last section where it was like oh she was this amazing person and he was this random traveler who was captivated by these plants and they met and fell in love and she had to fight a Mm. duel and I'm like where's their story too
0: I do too I love that I love that he's just like he strikes me as a bit like Darwin going off trying to find these plants (laughs) and then he falls in love with this real like
1: Furiosa character yeah yeah exactly love it when the centaur and his lady came up in Laszlo's dream, I'm like, oh, this is just the way I feel about every other secondary character in this book.
0: The thing that struck me about Sarai recognizing these characters and being like fascinated by all these you know, side quests, if you will. <laughs> it's like, they, they are taken from fairy tales, right? Like, yeah. Leslo did not come up with these people. They're based on fairy tales that he would have read, stories he would have heard. That's what he uses to populate his dreamscape. So if she actually wanted to know their story, well, guess what? There is a story. Like, he goes into this yeah. whole thing about the moon and she was so dismissive of it. And the next minute, she's totally beguiled by this moon story.
1: It's so cute. She's like, I can't believe I'm now talking moon nonsense. It's just, this guy's, this guy's had this effect on me. And I think it's really funny that she's mad about being led on a more fantastical bent. Although I don't think Laszlo exists in the real world. He's too amazingly wonderful he is a cinnamon roll
0: he is a cinnamon roll and he loves books and she has that observation where she's like no one who could love books could be bad (laughs) so lovely I I also want to go on a date to a cool library
1: (laughs) that reminds me of that line in attachments where Lincoln's like where's the singles garden I would pay a cover charge at a singles garden isn't that a great idea like where's the library let's say come to the library hang out with other people at the library
0: the problem with that is it'll be Laszlo before he goes on its adventure where he doesn't know how to talk to another human being and that's what the library will be full of, full of, mm-hmm. full of introverts who don't want to talk to anyone else and we'd all just sit there reading our books
1: <laughs> I do love that Master Hirokin turned up as well, that was really cute and how,
0: and how he embarrassed Leslie I'm like, Leslie you're in control of this dream, you are allowing him to do this so you want to be embarrassed? But he doesn't realise mm, it's yeah. a dream he's just on a date with the beautiful blue girl and her beautiful eyes It was really wholesome Um, Another thing I was going to say on the whole dream personal identity bent that I was on is also in the second dream, Sarai has this line on page 358, Sarai had never in all her life been asked her name or told it. Mm. And I, of course she hadn't. Who would ever need to ask her her name? And the fact that he does, it's just, oh, it moved me.
1: I think that line hits me so much harder because the only exposure they've had to the outside world is through her moths and Minya. Like, mm. they've never actually encountered anyone else. And she's so used to being unseen. Like, Like, she's literally the definition of a marginalized person experiencing life through the experiences of other people but unable to access any of
0: it when she is seen it's as Isagol right yeah. so this is real like misappropriation of identity it's no wonder that she's so conflicted because she she can never live as herself fully in the world
1: I really love that Laszlo, once he figures out that she's real, like he recognizes her. He doesn't think, he doesn't really think that's his goal, but he still has to check. Mm. And he's like, well, I dreamed her twice before, so maybe I'll dream her again. Okay, I can't get to sleep because I'm too excited because I might see her again. But I'll just think about what I would like to, like, maybe I'll sit down and have a nice cup of tea.
0: I I actually so vote, vote in the margins of that. Haha, ha, you nerd. Because he spends all that time getting ready for his little dream date and he's so weird and awkward about it and he wants everything to be perfect. And I'm like, oh, you are just... You're just a little cinnamon roll.
1: He is. He's so good. And like... (laughs) she was so startled that he was like waiting for her that he, he like backs up like I'm so sorry I'm so sorry
0: because he's so eager he's just standing there like huh you coming you coming are you coming, are you coming?
1: <laughs> going back to rumors and how people are inclined to believe negative ones over positive ones right I love that he's the opposite of that I love that he's immediately like the threat of hope guy he looks for the best mm. in everything and by the end of the first like few minutes with Sarai he wants to help Like he wants to know what he can do and he wants to know everything about her and how he can help her. And like,
0: yeah. And that's another thing that really like stood out to me in that section on page 355 when she says no one in the Citadel had ever cared that she was hurt because he asks if she's okay and he wants to look after her. It's interesting because if we look at it through the theme of rumors, like Laszlo is so eager to believe like Mm. he's the first person who believes a story, but believes a rumor. He's always the one chasing it down. He fully jumps into it, but he is always looking for the silver lining for the positive he might hear a rumor but he doesn't believe the bad side to it he goes looking for the good side and that's a superpower I think
1: man I just I love how awkward and nerdy he is he's the best
0: yeah this bit you're not my idea of a nightmare he said blushing a little I'm glad you're real he added blushing a lot
1: so cute. He's just an idiot and I love him. I love that he's an idiot because he's he's also himself, which I think is really important. Like I'd rather somebody be an idiot and themselves.
0: I wonder if he'd met her in person, like if, if they hadn't met in a dream, if she had come down and he'd run into her, whether he would be a capable of the same interaction. But is it because he's already met her in what he thought was a dream state that he is sort of freed from a kind of awkwardness that he would have had otherwise?
1: Yeah, maybe. I think there's something to that.
0: It's Harry and the Patronus is casting it knowing that you've already done it.
1: I was going to say, or it's a friend of a friend. Like, because you have a friend in common, you feel like you already know enough about them to be like, oh yeah, my friend likes you and I like my friend, so... Common ground. Yeah. He already knew he could talk to her because he had in the dream before. Yeah, it's knowing you can do something because you've already done it.
0: I also loved that while she's having this dream date with Laszlo and she's having this amazing conversation where someone for the first time ever has asked her her name and if she's okay... She's still looking out for Azarine and she goes into Azarine's nightmare and makes it better for her. Lightens her weapons, you know, diffuses the ghosts.
1: Yeah. That, like... It's a lot. It is a lot. And it makes me hurt for her. There are so few characters who I feel like I really want to protect love. And Azarine is one of those. She, like Laszlo, is always trying to do the right thing. Um, Should we do our in-depth marginalia?
0: Yeah, why don't you go first this time?
1: Okay, I have a slightly difficult one. I'm going to choose the second one that I picked because I think it kind of speaks to an interesting concept. Um, And on page 325, as Laszlo and Errol Fane and Solzarin and Azarine are going up in the Silk Sleigh, they're seeing the Citadel up close. Close, And, you know, Laszlo's talking about how even though it's all created out of a solid block of Mazarthium, Mm. you can still see it looks as if you can see the hip bone jutting out through Diaphanous Cloth. And it reminded me of like, you know, that scene in Pride and Prejudice where she's walking through and you can see all of the sculptures and they're like super beautiful and they look very gauzy and like there is such an art Mm. to that. And so the Mm. bit that I wanted to, to go in deep on page 325, whatever else he had been, Scathis had also been an artist. And I think that there's definitely room to have these conflicting things about people or, you know, like you can think two different things. We can accept that he was a monstrous being who abused people for centuries and also that he was an incredibly skilled artist like they don't have to be one or the other. And it's really important to remember that because when we create this idea through rumor or whatever that people are only Hmm. monsters we take away the fact that they were also like people we always need to remember that people even when they do monstrous things are still people because that stops us from becoming monstrous too
0: yeah and that's really interesting because you could argue that Minya doesn't have that frame of reference. Yeah. That's what Sarai puts to her, right? Being like, what's to stop us from being like scathous or like yeah. being like the others, exactly. because you're putting us on this road. Because there's no room for nuance. Mm.
1: What, at what point do we tip over
0: to being like our parents?
1: The context it reminded me of was the thought of this beautiful sculpted thing. I thought of the sculptures. And then I started thinking about the Elgin marbles and how they really need to be given back. And they shouldn't be called the Elgin marbles at all because they're like this guy Elgin ransacked them, but like they're not his. And so I started thinking about like cultural appropriation and like how there's like this appreciation of culture that often goes unremarked, but like it's when you appropriate it that it becomes a problem and like what a fine line that is. But I think it's really important to remember like what I'm going to work on for remembering is that even though people can be really terrible they still might have something to offer and even if it's just you know what is it if you can't be a good example be a horrible warning even if it's just a horrible warning that's still a positive right we know not we now know what not to do so there's yeah, yeah there's something there's value in everyone i really do believe that so I think just going forward, I'm going to try and remember that it isn't justifying whatever terrible behavior yeah. they've done, but also like it doesn't erase what they've done. That's good.
0: I think that's really important is this idea that you can recognize that, but that's not doesn't mean condoning or justifying those terrible actions. you yeah. can still recognize that this is a thing that exists that is amazing or that is you know like this sculpture. You can you can admire the artistry that went into it Absolutely. without condoning or admiring the person who did it.
1: Oh, 100%. We are allowed to love things made by imperfect people.
0: Everyone's imperfect. That's the problem. Exactly.
1: We don't have to say, we I can't. agree and support this person. We can say, I really love
0: their work, but. You don't have to put them in a pedestal or like support them or financially do any of that stuff. It's a, a, a murky landscape and we can all just navigate it as best we can. But if we expect people to be perfect, then no one will ever do anything because it's way too scary. Yeah, for sure. Because you're going to mess up. You're going to mess up. And then what's going to happen to you? People should be allowed to have redemption arcs. Yeah, there needs to be room for nuance. Yeah. I think is what we're coming this that's what this text is teaching me. Is there yeah. needs to be nuance and there needs to be empathy.
1: I love it. Mm. Did you have some in-depth marginalia?
0: I did. I was kind of tossing up between two, but I think I'm gonna go with my second one. So on page three hundred and forty four we've got Sarai um you know she's just had this fight with Minya and Minya's basically bounded to her room and she can't leave and so she feels really terrible about this decision where she feels she's turned against her family. But she's also really scared about nightfall and well she's not she's afraid of dreaming right she's afraid yeah. of falling asleep and having horrible nightmares and she's also afraid of going down into town and finding out what horrors that errol Fain is preparing to come back yeah. and what laszlo thinks of her and all these things and she's just in a real state of grief yeah. and terror and she says on page 334 her terror of what awaited her just over the threshold of consciousness was more powerful still she wasn't well ghosts without horrors within and nowhere to turn And I was just so overwhelmed by the hopelessness in that section, but also that she describes herself as not being well. You know, she's so tired because she doesn't sleep because she's afraid of her nightmares. She is now captive in her room, knowing that her family essentially, well, Minya at least hates her and the others aren't willing to to step out of line to see her. And she's also just got nowhere to go. She's basically a dead end. And she sort of goes into this thing where she sort of thinks about ending her life. Yeah. And then she's like, that wouldn't... actually achieve anything because the person who told her to do that is actually her own projection so she has that awareness and it's just such an intense thing and I think it's it's sort of this idea that the rumors that you hear and the knowledge that you have that inform your self-belief because she has internalized this horror because that's what she believes that people think she is she doesn't really have a foundation for that I feel like I've been in that position where I was so afraid of going asleep facing that kind of other ego self of you in your dreams the one that says terrible things or the one that you you're gonna wake up crying and just have a horrible time Aww. I really felt for her and her hopelessness and the fact that she turns it around she has this conversation with herself where she's like no actually my mercy is a singular and precious thing I did the right yeah. thing and that's what makes me special and I think that's how I want to use this going forward is that when you are in moments of absolute despair there are still lights within yourself there is still good within yourself Absolutely. and you have to hold on to that and you will get through it and she gets to go on a nice date with laszlo after this yeah. so that's nice isn't it a dream that's not all bad it's
1: good to remember that we all have something to offer
0: even if we think we don't and that's kind of why i also love just to go back to my favorite thing harry potter the dementa patronus thing as like an allegory for depression like the dementor is a really good allegory for depression because it does come on like that you know it does suck the life out of you and this idea that hanging on to the happy memories The things that matter to you the things you love that's what gets you through it and i think that's kind of what sarai does here as well she she finds this happiness within herself not happiness necessarily but pride and just conviction being that she's doing the right thing and that's what gets her through this this moment
1: so yeah that was mine. We all have something important. We all have something to give. And we all have something valuable. Um, Did you have a character you want
0: to spotlight? And I feel like I know who it's
1: going to be. <laughs> Gee, I wonder. Um, yeah, I want to spotlight Azarine. This girl has been so badly traumatized. She didn't get her memories erased. She gave birth to a baby. And she didn't even look at the baby. But she still hears its cries. Mm. I mean, the baby was taken from her. And then presumably sometime after she, like, somebody did something. That baby is gone. And then she has to go up to this horrible place and deal with that because she is the second in command. And it is her job to go up to the Citadel again and mm-hmm. check it. And she's willing to do that. And then her ghost Nana tries to bash her head in. And then they get back down. And her husband, with whom she's estranged, won't even give her a hug. I want to smack Errol Fane upside the head and be like, this isn't about you, friend. You need to go mm-hmm. in there and comfort your best friend. This is a moment you need to spend with her. So she's very alone and I feel so sad but I am actually really glad that Sarai was there even though she didn't know Sarai was there for anybody out there yeah. who feels like everything is terrible and the person that they care about is not taking care of them somebody sees you
0: mm, yeah and the thing is like Errol Fine stays in the room so he's decided to stay there and he sleeps in the next room so he's obviously aware enough mm. that he needs to be there but he still can't I don't want to say get over himself but also kind of a little get bit over get himself. over yourself
1: yeah. <laughs> um how about you who do you want to spotlight this week
0: so I was going to spotlight lovely Sparrow. Um, I wanted to spotlight her for saying you could give Minya a nice warm hug because I think <laughs> that is such a wow moment because yeah. she is so kind and so, so, you know, nurturing. And then the fact and this is not the first time she's had that instinct. Previously, when she was making the cake for Ruby, she had that thought as well about the ghosts and things and how she kind of wished they would just disappear. And mm. maybe Minya is the problem. So this is the second time where she's kind of caught onto that yeah. Minya is the problem. And maybe if we get rid of Minya, then the problem is no longer a problem, which I think is just, it's quite a big step for her. Because it also says in that section, she Sparrow said that line with an unaccustomed edge to her voice. So, you know, there's like, there's definitely bite to Sparrow. And then she is also the only one who sort of hesitates when Minya sends them away to confront yeah. Sarai and she mouths sorry to Sarai. And Sarai describes her as a really empathetic soul, which I just love. And then she does Sarai's hair and she does all their hair and she just spends that time. I just feel like she's in such a difficult position and she's yeah. trying her best within the system that she knows. She doesn't quite know how to dismantle the system but she wants to try and i think so many people find themselves in that situation where they're caught in a system that they know isn't right isn't fair and we don't really know what to do about it but you know if you're trying look trying is better than nothing yeah exactly so yeah shout out to sparrow for being lovely
1: and for also acknowledging that angry feeling she has and kind of giving into it a bit in a way that's actually, yeah. like, she doesn't do a horrible thing. She just blows
0: off steam about it, which I think is very fair. Yeah, she leans into it and she doesn't pretend that everything's okay. And she knows that, you know, anger is a product can be a productive emotion. And she is, I think, harnessing that. It's good to say when you're mad. Yeah, don't bottle it up and be like, I'm fine. <laughs> you're not fine. You're not going to be fine later either.
1: Yeah. All
0: right, well, next week we're going to be reading chapters 42 through 48 through the theme of solitude. That is going to be quite a lot, I think, so I'm excited to get into it. Like, I'm really sad that we're on, you know, the seventh recording, like our seventh episode. I, I don't feel ready to let these characters go. I feel like there's still so much to delve into.
1: Well, I shall chat to you next week after we read the next few chapters. Amazing. Look forward
0: to it. Thank you
1: for potting with me. Thanks for me. potting with me. I'll see you soon. Bye.
0: Bye.
1: thanks for joining us today marginalia pod is written edited and produced by us gen d and gen v with additional editing and production support by simon b if you enjoyed it we'd love it if you'd subscribe rate and review it on itunes your support means the world to us we'd also love to hear from you you can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com our music is by scott buckley Many of the things we've mentioned are in the show notes, or you can find out more about us and the podcast at www.marginaliapod.com.